Well, good morning, St. Peter's, and a blessed uh, first Sunday of Epiphany to all of you. So for me, this past Wednesday uh, started like any other. I caught up on emails, I had a few virtual meetings, and I was putting the finishing touches on what was going to be a really awesome sermon on the baptism of Jesus for today. And then alerts started beeping on my phone. And I read about the increasing violence in Washington, D.C. and the assault on the Capitol building. And worried about how this would impact our Epiphany House Blessing service, I texted Christine to ask uh, if we should do anything differently in light of what looked like an attempted coup in our nation's capital. Starting Epiphany by asking about how to respond to an armed insurrection seemed both surreal and totally normal for the world we're living in today. It was yet another last straw, which like the ones before it is probably not actually the last thing to happen to make me cry out to God for strength or deliverance or protection, or to turn to the scriptures for words of comfort and hope. So my paternal ancestors were Huguenots and they fled to North America from France in the late 1600s to escape religious persecution. And when they arrived on these shores, having left behind family and homes and livelihoods, they clung to the belief that the God who had been with them as they left the violence of France would still be with them in their new homes. A common psalm chanted by Huguenots and frequently inscribed in their religious art was Psalm 92:12. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The psalm evokes an agricultural image of a tree that is transplanted from its native environment to a garden under the direct care of God. In the wild, the tree may have struggled with the forces of nature, but when carefully transplanted into the courts of God, it flourishes as it is tended and cared for in its new home. This is a powerful image for religious refugees looking to create a new home. And for my ancestors, transplantation that was necessitated by migration was pregnant with the promise of flourishing as they leaned into the grace of God. As I reflect on this part of my own story, though these ancestors of mine lived hundreds of years ago, I too find myself wondering a lot about human flourishing. I wonder what it means for me and my family, for us in this church and more broadly, all of us in this country to truly experience human flourishing today. In scripture, flourishing is the sort of thing that is often conveyed by the richly poetic Hebrew word for peace, shalom. Shalom can mean everything from wholeness and stability to peace and security. Shalom is the state of being loved and cared for by God and by neighbor. A world at peace is so perfect and so beautiful that Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven, echoing the words of songs and prophets and poets from sacred scripture who described a world at peace as a place where God dwells with humanity. I think for humans to live in peace and for us to experience human flourishing, we must be joined to God and to neighbor in a common bond of trust. Trust is the connective tissue that links me to both God's grace and to my neighbor's needs. Trust is what holds the world in peace and safeguards the flourishing of God's creation. If we want to participate with God in creating a world where we all flourish, we must also develop a capacity to trust. 
And as I look around us today, it feels to me as if we are experiencing an almost universal crisis of trust. The president and his supporters don't trust the electoral system to ensure that votes are fairly and accurately counted. The Congress has lost trust in a president who seems committed to spending the last few days of his presidency uh, continuing in his pattern of lies and half-truths and inciting violence. Conservatives appear to have lost trust in progressives or liberals whom they fear are closeted socialists or communists that will erode personal liberties and freedoms. On the other side, progressives and liberals have lost trust in conservatives whom they fear are closeted fascists or racists who will continue to marginalize those who are not part of the so-called majority. And at large, trust is eroded by the proliferation of various conspiracy theories. A frighteningly large number of Americans doubt that the moon landing was real or that the earth is round or that climate change is actually happening and most worryingly right now are concerned about the danger of vaccines. Only a few years ago, this sort of trust eroding conspiracy thinking would have felt more at home in the headlines of tabloids located next to stories about alien abductions or the resurrection of Elvis Presley. And now it is commonplace for us to feel that we can't trust either history or demonstrable hard science, much less our government, our churches or our neighbors. I think our capacity to trust has been diminished because it is so frequently and blatantly abused. We know that the breaking of trust is almost always a traumatic event and trauma can often lead to a further erosion of trust. This cycle of trust violated and trust lost leads to a spiraling deficit in our capacity to trust anything or anyone. And without trust, there can be no peace and without peace, there cannot be a context for human flourishing. So how do we learn to trust again? Christian life begins by taking a small step of trust in the direction of the open arms of God. And often this takes the form of the sacrament of baptism. Now a sacrament is an act where God's promise and grace are made directly present in tangible and material forms. Baptism along with the Eucharist is one of the two primary sacraments of the church. And in baptism, God's grace and promise are made present in that holy water which through the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ and makes us adopted children in the family of God. In baptism's liturgy, we respond to God's free grace by making, three, by making certain promises. And these promises are called the baptismal covenant. And in our church, this can be found in the Book of Common Prayer, page 304. The first three of these promises sound very familiar to anyone who has worshiped with Christians before. They are the words that we say almost daily in the form of the Apostles' Creed. In baptism, as we begin a lifelong journey of following Jesus, we do so with the same words that will daily sustain us on this lifelong journey of following Jesus. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now here's where the trust bit comes in. The word that we translate as believe in the creed is probably better rendered as trust. And I think it is important for us to recover the sense of trust that is intended in the words of the creed. To say that we believe in God makes talking about God feel like we're talking about a fact among other facts. It's like saying, I believe that the books behind me have words in them, or I believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States. Statements of belief 
often pertain to objects or events. But the creed isn't just asking us to believe in a set of facts. Instead, the creed is asking us to engage in a trusting relationship with God. So if we say that we trust in God the Father Almighty, the statement all of a sudden is less about an object that I can know, like the books behind me, than it is about a person who knows me. In other words, while statements of belief pertain to objects or events, statements of trust pertain more naturally to relationships and persons. And here's the important difference between believing in a thing and trusting in a person. Believing in God simply acknowledges God's existence. Trusting in God implies that God is committed to being here for me in my life right now. The creed is made up of three we believe in statements. We believe in God, we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, if these we believe in statements are better understood as we trust in statements, meaning that they are about persons and relationships, not just about facts and objects, how does it change what it feels like for us to affirm this baptismal faith? What's different in your mind if you were to say, I trust in God, I trust in Jesus Christ, I trust in the Holy Spirit? It makes the creed an exercise in trusting. It helps to strengthen and heal those strained and broken trust muscles that have been abused in our public life. And most importantly, it places us within a trusting relationship with the most trustworthy being imaginable, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that this God is worth trusting in the first place? Well, the three different lessons set for today, the story of the creation in Genesis, the baptism of Jesus in Mark, and the story of the, and the acts of the apostles of this baptism of early Christians, all help shed light on how we can know that God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy because God has and continues to fill God's promises. The God who creates this world is the same God who sends God's son to redeem the world, and the same God who sends the spirit to sustain us and to grow us in unity with God and one another. So I'm not asking us to build trust for trust's sake or to engage in trust with those who are untrustworthy. My hope is for us that by exercising these trust muscles in the one who is truly trustworthy, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we can begin to rebuild the trust that has been damaged in this world around us. And with trust, we can develop peace. And with peace, perhaps we can flourish like one who is transplanted into the courts of God. Amen.